Hi everyone, welcome to the Bold Beautiful Borderline podcast. My name is Lori and I am super stoked today to be joined by Dr. Sky Fitzpatrick, who's the lab director at the Tulip Lab at York University. And she does a lot of incredible research around BPD, PTSD. The nerd in me is just like beyond stoked to have a conversation with you, Sky. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself just generally? Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. So, so yes, I am an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at York University, which is in Toronto, and I'm a clinical psychologist. And my research, I direct a lab, as you said, called the Tulip Lab. And my research is really focused on optimizing treatments for folks with BPD and for people with PTSD as well, post-traumatic stress disorder. And then that's kind of taken me in a lot of different directions lately, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But Some of those have involved trying to harness our relationships to help people get better. And then uh, more recently, I've been really interested in ways of developing and testing interventions that can scale uh, onto like a big group of people. Uh, So things like online-based interventions, um, peer support-based work, community-based work has been of of interest to me lately. That's really cool. We have a peer support group called the Super Feelers Club. And that was what my master's research was about. And it is so easy to scale. And I was yeah. presenting about it at a conference, a health conference last or in May or June. And somebody came up to me and was like, how do you fund, how do you fund this? And I was like, oh, we don't. And they're like, mm-hmm. oh, they're like, you should get funding. I was like, hundred percent we should, but I just don't have the time to like figure it out. And they're like, this saves the healthcare system, like thousands of dollars. And I was like, oh, for sure. Yeah. These like interventions that people don't think of as like treatment can change lives just as much, if not more than some treatments that are available. I completely agree. And I would also even say that some of the things that providers are doing under the umbrella of treatment, people who are not mental health care providers are fully capable of doing. If we would just Mm. provide the training and knowledge and work with communities effectively and not hoard knowledge, people could do it. Like, you know, I think people are capable of of doing a lot of things that uh, right now are being kind of protected and gatekept by mental health care professionals. 100% trying to get into a clinical psych program in Ugh, Canada, like impossible. <laughs> impossible. And the thing is, is like, if you have lived experience, you probably don't have a 4.0 mm. and, but you would also probably be like one of the better clinicians, right? Like, because you're invested and have just like such an incredible insight into what it looks like to actually live with something. So yeah, the totally. gatekeeping is massive. Um, mm-hmm. Do you, do you see that changing at all? Like over time? Oh, such a good question. I mean, gatekeeping happens in so many forms in the field. Like you said, it's very hard to even get into a training program that could train somebody to be a clinical psychologist but then even within the field, it's like, you know, treatment manuals cost money and then you have to get trained and then you have to get certified. And like, there's so many hoops to jump through to say like, yeah, I can do this therapy. So like, even for therapists, it can be hard to access treatments like treatments like that I'm trained in that are very near and dear to my heart that I research like dialectical behavior therapy is a perfect example. It can be very hard to, to access even for the therapists. And then of course, for the actual clients can be very hard to access. Um, Which is directly related to how hard it is to access for people trying to run the therapy, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. totally. It's like a huge, it's like a problem that kind of like the tentacles of it go in all directions. 
And, um, and then it usually, you know, those access issues hurt, they hurt everybody, but they hurt some people more than others. They hurt like more marginalized people who have less money, who are in less resourced areas, who are in more rural areas more, because of course, the experts are all concentrated in cities and stuff like that. I think what I see happening in the field is kind of um, like a split in two directions. I think some people have gone in a direction that is some people are very concerned about the idea that there are treatment providers and therapists out there that are doing, that are saying they're doing treatments that they're not actually trained to do and people aren't getting quality care. And for example, in the dialectical behavior therapy field, this is a big fear for a lot of people that, you know, what if somebody, what if a client thinks they're getting DBT and they're not, or they're not getting DBT of the highest quality and it doesn't work. And then they think that this treatment can't work for them when it could have, if they were with the right provider or provider who's trained properly, you know, there's concern about that doing real harm to people. And that concern is very valid. So some people are going in the direction of like, we need to train more, certify more and like, you know, make sure that the people who say that they're doing these things can really do it, which is important but it can have a side effect of restricting access, like clamping down on who can do things. Other people are going the other direction, which is like, we need to actually give it away more, like expand it further and have it so that even if you can't, even if a clinician is not fully trained in the treatment, they're trained in doing a little bit so that they can do at least something with folks who need this treatment when they show up in their practice or clinic. Um, And both of those things are true. Like it's a true, you know, not to be like a cliche DBT person, but it's a true dialectic. It is. Yeah. (laughs) Both of those things are needed and true. And I kind of think we need to figure out how to do all of that at once. Um, My fear is always that we go too far in the, in the first direction at the expense of access. So of lately, lately I've been really focused in the other direction, but I think that's partially because there's so many people on the first side that I mentioned. Yeah. And I think there's got to be a middle ground in just to, again, to be pretty classic and try and see the gray um, to to be able to have like, you know, full DBT programs that are like very much by very skilled licensed professionals, but then also not gatekeeping the skills. Like I believe that we should be teaching DBT skills to kindergartners because it would change our lives for the better for every single human being on earth, regardless of whether or not you have a mental health issue. I agree with you completely. And this would be a good example of what I think, like, um, I, I don't, I, I, I think that there are ways that we can teach people who don't have like full extensive mental health care training, how to teach the skills. We have to figure out how to do that in a way that's safe, that's thoughtful, that's careful, that is like, not just protecting the clients, but protecting the people who are teaching the skills too, from being in situations that, that are very hard for them. But I think that there is a way to do that and figure that out. And that's sort of what I'm starting to get really interested in now. We get that a lot with the peer support group that we do, because we do teach skills as part, not like formally teach skills, Mm -hmm. but what we do is we have like an open share session and then we'll have a piece where we're talking specifically about like, okay, so based on somebody's experience in the group, does anybody want to like go through a skill example? And then the people in the group Mm -hmm. will go through that skill example. And part of my research showed that like, that was incredibly beneficial for people who either hadn't gone through DBT, were going through the workbooks themselves, but didn't have an opportunity to like discuss the skills 
yeah. or had gone through DBT, but were forgetting skills because that happens to everyone. So it was helpful totally. for kind of across the spectrum. And what's interesting is like when you have people with lived experience in a room together, a lot of those group dynamic issues seem to kind of work themselves out because we're all there for the same reason. Mm-hmm. So I think like, yes, of course you have to have suicide prevention. You have to have like risk management. You have to be able to follow up with people, but yeah. with those basic skills and lived experience and like a collective reason to be there, it yeah. seems to kind of like not come up as much as you'd think, which is interesting. That is really interesting to to think about. I was at a panel a while ago at a conference and it was a panel of people who have lived experience with BPD and emotion dysregulation who do a lot of peer support work, both as recipients and providers. And they talked so much about the power of peer support, just as instilling hope and like modeling you know, futures for them that they couldn't always see for themselves. And then also like when they were on kind of the other side of their treatment journey, giving them like the sense of mastery and being able to model that for others. And it really made me think about how as a psychologist and someone who hangs out with a lot of psychologists and researchers, like we really think we're the sun and we're like, not like, like we, you know, have a potential role to play for some people, but sometimes it's, I think about getting out of the way and figuring out like, well, if people with lived experience of this can do this in ways that are more powerful than I can, because they have that experience, maybe my role should be helping support them in doing that versus kind of inserting myself into the middle of it, you know, like as a philosophical stance, this is all very hypothetical right now, but I am starting to cook up some projects in this vein around like, how can we get, how can we use our training and expertise as clinicians to support communities in, in, in helping themselves instead of putting ourselves in the middle of all those communities when there's, there's never going to be enough of us anyway, like it's not a feasible model. Yeah. And it shouldn't be like, I I was saying before we started recording that I work in indigenous health and like, there's that savior complex that a lot of people have and we, that's not helpful. Totally. Um, So being able to be like, okay, so what, how can, how can we support you with your goals? Like, again, kind of using that strength-based patient-centered approach where it's like, what do you want? Because if you don't want what I want, then why am I here like imposing my desires on you to like fit in this box? And I think with people with BPD, we've been forced or like attempted to be forced to like fit into a box that society Mm -hmm. wants us to fit into. And maybe that's not where we should be like that. Our peer support group is called the super feelers club for a reason, because we think our super feelerness is a superpower. Like, yeah, we're not bad people. We just have strong emotions. And like, that is one of the most beautiful things about us. Right. Um, Yeah. What you just said about like, fitting people into boxes and people conforming into those boxes makes a lot of sense. I think that in, in the treatment development and testing field, there was like a tradition for a long time of like, Oh, we're the experts. We know how this condition works. We're going to make the treatment and then that's going to help the people. And I'm really happy to see that changing a lot of like, well, what do people actually want? Like, what do people actually need? And, you know, hello, they have like a lot of expertise and knowledge that we don't have um, that is actually essential and germane to making something that's beneficial to people. One of my students in my lab is starting a project that involves 
trying to ask folks with BPD, like if we forget about all these terms that are now in the culture, like DBT and skills and like life worth living. And if you were to approach treatment and, and forget about like the words that clinicians and researchers have imposed, like what would you actually want out of the treatment? And is what people tell us even lining up with what the treatments are designed to do? Like, I don't even know the answer to that question at this point. Um, so I think having more people with lived experience involved is really critical. Oh, that's so cool. I hope one day you should ask that uh, that graduate student to come on here and tell us about that because when she's got the results, I'll tell yeah, her. <laughs> please do because like that that's so important. And it's one thing for us to have a goal of like reducing harm to selves and others, like whatever, fair enough. But I mean, even things like non-suicidal self-injury, like that's a coping mechanism for a reason. Right. It's right. it's not the best coping mechanism, but maybe that's not something that is the number one priority for somebody to stop right now because they have other priorities that treatment isn't addressing until they stop this one behavior. Yeah. I think that's a really I think that's a really interesting and fair critique mm-hmm. of the DBT treatment model. And yeah, I wonder what's gonna happen with that exact point. I think that I wonder what will happen with that in the coming years. Yeah. And I mean, I think also like self-harm looks different for so many people that it's like, uh, we don't talk about methods on this podcast for obvious reasons, but, but, you know, there's certain methods that we all know about that are more commonly seen as self-harm than other methods, right? Like when Mm -hmm. we interview um, men on this podcast or individuals who use substances, like that can also be self-harm, but it's not necessarily looked at in the same way when it comes to like DBT or other therapies. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Yeah. Such a good point. Yeah. So out of curiosity, how do you think stigma impacts all of this? Oh, so much. I mean, it's like, I, I don't think that I need to tell you this, that BP stigma is like a big problem. Yeah. I'm sure you know. Um, and actually anybody who's like living with BPD or related problem knows better than I do. But um I think that there's like kind of multiple ways that this shakes out and like you can kind of go deeper and deeper into it on like a really practical level. I think, of course, stigma prevents people from getting treatments that they need, from seeking treatments and sometimes probably even from benefiting from treatments if they believe they can't get better or aren't worthy of getting better. Um, then it will be harder for them to get better. And and sometimes those beliefs come from people's own personal experiences, but sometimes those beliefs come from the healthcare system or like come from academics um, who have been kind of spouting pejorative rhetoric for decades. Um, So I think it has like, it really lands on people in a very real way. I mean, I think people with BPD struggle with sometimes such profound self-loathing. It's so heartbreaking to see. And it's also like, I really think the healthcare system and the academic system have participated in it and, you know, maybe even started it. Like, I'm not sure, but um, certainly haven't done it any favors in some of the terms that get used frequently. I think it also creates access issues because like therapists don't always go and train in BPD Mm -hmm. treatment because they have misinformation about BPD that they've been taught. Recently, a a group of uh, researchers and some folks with lived experience got together to write an article about, um, because we found an article that was published recently in a reputable journal 
that was uh, called, it basically the premise of the article was, well, let's take a bunch of heterosexual men and ask them how attracted they would be to a woman based on BPD symptoms and how attractive she was. It was like extremely sexist and pejorative. Yeah. In like a, in like a reputable journal. Wow. So we all got together to write an article and kind of response to this saying like, you know, we're really sick of this in the field. Like this is like really unacceptable and it's totally not evidence-based and untrue. So I think a lot of that's getting kind of unchallenged in the ether. Um, And yeah, I think that that has a negative impact. And I think you can see evidence even of the stigma, even at like really high levels, like in the diagnosis itself, like if you read the DSM, yep, there are still things I will see in the DSM where I'm like, that's not evidence-based. That's not true. That actually sounds really sexist. That actually sounds really like pejorative and it's like if it's written into the criteria itself of how we define BPD, and then that's how everyone's researching BPD, it's like baked in to the, yeah. the bedrock, you know? Um, totally. So yeah, it's kind of everywhere. Yeah, I agree. And I think in some ways, the lack of individual, not that there's none. I mean, there's some amazing, the person I do this podcast with is a um, master's of social work and she does, she's a like clinical counselor in the States and, you know, she's great, has BPD as well. But I think a lot of the time the stigma also impacts the view of um, healthcare systems and also researchers of us being able to manage ourselves well enough to be involved in some of these fields. So, I mean, when I was considering what master's program to go into, I was speaking to an individual who was in the field and they said, like, you can apply to be you can apply for a clinical counseling or sorry, clinical psychology program, but don't tell them you have BPD. Yeah. And it's like, well, I'm going to because that's the value that I actually bring to this work. And I can be a just as smart and reliable and whatever. Awesome. Yeah. (laughs) As as anybody that doesn't have BPD. Right. Um, But to to be told that when you're finishing your undergrad and being like, oh, okay, so this is like ingrained there. And then also having advocated for the inclusion of peer support into like hospital-based DBT models and being told like, yeah, but it's really high risk. Uh And it's like, right. But what's the reward? (laughs) Because our, yes, sure. Like maybe we're a little bit more high risk from your insurer's perspective, but also we cost the system a ton of money because we can't access the treatment we need. And we're not living the life that we want or deserve. So like, why yeah. can't, why can't we at least like just kind of put the liability piece to the side for a moment and mm-hmm. see what would actually happen if we were to embed these models run by people with lived experience into systems? Because I think it would, I think they would run into way fewer liability issues than they actually think that they would. Yeah. And also just to recognize, like, this is the water we're swimming in. Like there's risk when you work with people who are suicidal. Like we, we, it's, I'm not trying to be cavalier. Like we want to be very thoughtful about it, but, but I think, I mean, I think you're so right in really questioning, like, is this a risk issue or is this an issue that's presuming a kind of incompetence or a lack of capability? And that's not actually true. Like what, you know, what is the, what is this really about? I think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And 
I think what's funny about that too is like people don't realize like BPD is a very prevalent problem. People with BPD are everywhere and you may not even know because they are completely capable of doing things. Your lawyer could have BPD. Your therapist could have BPD. That And you, they could be wonderful lawyers and therapists. And, and yeah, of course, there are people with BPD who are struggling so much they are having a hard time holding a job. That's a real thing too. But it's like a huge spectrum. It's a hugely heterogeneous problem. So yeah, I think um, people don't really... I realize that that like the level of that spectrum of of severity and how well people are functioning and also presume a lot of incompetence that's not true not evidence-based I think people with BPD when they are you know in a place with their treatment and their wellness where they you know feel comfortable with this make some of the best therapists they're so emotionally attuned totally there's actually like data on this. Like there's data that shows that people with BPD can read faces faster and more accurately than everybody else. So it's like, um, that's actually a superpower. You know, that's a pretty incredible thing to be good at uh, and would really serve people in a lot of different roles like therapy. Yeah, absolutely. I like, I can feel the energies of people around me and know, mm-hmm. like, know, like, before anybody else like oh we're done now kind of thing like if, you know, if, we're, if we're playing like a board game or something and somebody's frustrated I yeah. know that we are done and we're past the point of no return with another person in the room even if I don't know them very well long before anybody else would realize that there's like a weird energy going on That's and so, so sometimes I have to just say like okay guys we're done like sorry this actually <laughs> because I, the other person's probably unlikely to say something but yeah. I can feel you can like that tap they're into done. that yeah, yeah. yeah. And interesting. it's super interesting. Um, mm. Oh, there was something else about the stigma piece. Yeah. I mean, and also anti-stigma research shows that like part of the best way that you can help reduce stigma is by interacting with people who have BPD and yeah. especially people who have BPD that don't necessarily fit the mold that the stigma is like associated with. And so that's part of the purpose of this podcast, right? Is to like we have people from all over the world come on and share their stories. And some of them are having a really hard time. And some of them are totally living a life that like most people would consider non-mentally ill. But we all, as we talk to each other, it's like very clear that we have BPD. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I think if other than the fact that I've just been kind of vocal about having BPD for 10 years, like Mm -hmm. a lot, like people that I know and I meet and they haven't heard that I have BPD, wouldn't assume that I do. Yeah. But I definitely do. Right. <laughs> and like, and when I talk to people with BPD, like they're my family. Like I know we're all connected in this like really interesting way because we can all feel each other in this so such a like a powerful and beautiful way that's mm. totally different than what we're kind of taught to think about ourselves, which is like your emotions are either invalid or like way too much and you need to control yourself. And it's like, but yeah, I need to control myself in that. I don't need to like hurt other people or hurt hurt myself ideally. Yeah. But, but like, who's saying that my feelings are a bad thing. Totally. Yeah. I, you know, it's what you're saying is so interesting and it's like beautiful and it makes me think a lot when the thought that was coming up for me was, wow, our relationship to emotion is so broken as a society. (laughs) Like, because I think a lot of this is like the stigma around BPD comes from so many different things. I think 
I think folks with BPD are really hit with like, and I want to be clear, it's not that only like cis women get BPD, but I think there's a lot of sexism that has permeated oh, the diagnosis sure. that's resulted in a lot of stigma. But so I do think there's like a sexism issue. And then there's this kind of like anti-emotion thing that's really been hard on, on people with BPD in particular, that if we didn't have the presumption that feeling emotions is a bad thing, that is baked into a lot of our world, you know, it'd be very hard to stigmatize folks with BPD in this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The sexism piece is huge. And yeah, like it's, it's kind of wild that it's still so prevalent. Like if you were to ask people like, you know, we've heard so many men over the, over my lifetime, like, Oh, my crazy girlfriend had BPD, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. blah. Like, was she crazy, quote unquote, or did you yeah. make, did you make her crazy? <laughs> because like, yeah. if this happens to all of your girlfriends, maybe they have unmet needs that they're trying to get met. Yeah, and- it's like a real red flag. Yeah, <laughs> you're the common denominator. Yeah, so totally. yeah, and but you know when you look at the BPD, I don't know what the current breakdown is, but like hugely more diagnosed in women than men. Totally. Um, and I don't know what the numbers are for trans folks. I don't know if that's something that you've seen. I was looking into that recently. I think that the data is mixed on that. And honestly, it's so understudied that I don't think we probably have a lot of conclusive information because the it's been really biased towards studying things and cis people. There's some mixed data on this is not the same thing as being trans, of course, but there's some mixed data on like queerness and BPD and whether it's elevated in, in folks who identify as like LGBTQ. But it's also very difficult because like those folks have faced such invalidation often that it's like, is this a sort of response to an invalidation that you're more likely to experience? I'm not sure. Yeah. Or higher levels of trauma, which then can cause more BPD totally. yep. and like higher levels of discrimination in the healthcare system, which means you're less likely to get diagnosed in the first place because you're not going to go right. Like I think there's probably, I would assume again, I don't think it's been researched. I've looked, I've looked at it or I've tried to look at it is like weight stigma in the healthcare system and Mm. diagnosis of mental health issues. Cause like, you know, ask anybody that's overweight and has mental health issues that's gone to the doctor and they're like, well, if you were just skinny, you wouldn't be depressed. And it's like, great, thanks. That's helpful. Yeah. Uh, so like you know intersectionalities in all of these ways yeah um impact our ability to get diagnosed and treated and participate in research which totally you know is hopefully changing over time but I mean my study wasn't great for that either like I think all of my participants were white and one of them was male so yeah all so in the so I do a lot of work on couples of course and I think I'm trying to check. Is this an overstatement? I don't think it is. And if it is by maybe one study or something, but all of the couple studies that I'm aware of that have studied couples where like at least one person has BPD have been done in heterosexual couples. And I believe all of them or nearly all of them, it's the women who have BPD, which is like a very specific setup. Um, Our studies are not that way. Of course, but not of course. They're important to me that they're not that way, but it's like very, very restrictive in terms of what is actually out there at the moment. 
Yeah. And some people don't even tell their partners they have BPD and would never be able to participate in a study like this. I know the person that I co-host with is queer and she's really interested in participating with her partner. So um, hopefully that. Come on, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. People are really interested in um, like what's going on in the research. So, okay. Kind of going backwards a little bit. What made you interested in BPD as a research topic? So I started like this was like a million years ago when I was an undergrad, but I had obviously I knew I wanted to be a clinical psychologist, but I also had a background in activism and in feminism in particular. And I kind of like my sort of I don't know, this is so vague, but kind of my spirit really resonated with thinking like an activist. And that was just really important to me. And in fact, when I went, when I was pursuing graduate studies, one of my questions was like, can I be a feminist and a psychologist at the same time? Like, is that even a thing? Like, or is it impossible? Like, you know, these were like questions that I had in my mind. And I was interviewing with a bunch of different supervisors um, to do different kinds of research, you know, research in depression, research in anxiety and, and all of that kind of stuff. And I met my, the person who was to become my advisor, who was Marshall Linehan's graduate student and Marshall Linehan who developed CBT really has the spirit of an activist. She, and I mean, was involved in like feminist movements. And, and has BPD, which is so and had BPD. Cool. Yeah. So I remember like in my interview, my advisor said, you know, in addition to being in like extreme agony, I think the people with BPD are like some of the most harmed but also like you know like harmed by the mental health care system and you know folks who are suffering more than almost anyone else and I see it as like my personal mission to correct that and there was something about just her way of speaking about the injustice that folks with BPD have experienced of being in a lot of pain like an excruciating amount of pain but having very little help available to them and then on top of that having stigma that felt so uh, wrong to me that like after that interview, I felt like, well, how could I do anything else? Like, this is like, this is just unacceptable. (laughs) Um, and I kind of felt like, oh, wow, because of stigma, there's actually a lot of people who aren't going into this. Like they actually, like we need bodies in this space, you know, and I didn't feel like that with some of the other things I was considering doing. So it was kind of like an open and shut. As soon as I got the offer to work with that person, I accepted it was like done. I never looked back. Who was that, that was Janice Quo, who's now at Palo Alto University in California. Oh, okay, cool. She sounds yeah. great. She I'm is like, great. Yeah, interesting. My okay. mom, my academic mom. Yeah, she's was great. she in at a Canadian university before? She was. She's at. She was at Toronto Metropolitan, formerly known as Ryerson in Toronto. That's. I didn't where even I know they changed their there. name. Mm-hmm. That's hilarious. They did. When? when? The last few years, I believe. So now it's Toronto Oops. Metropolitan University. I'm out of date. Interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah, awesome. I'll have to look into her because that sounds really cool as well. Well, we appreciate you coming into this field because we need awesome. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Like you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, we need awesome people like you for sure, and like friendly and like caring people who don't necessarily come with the lived experience perspective are so needed because we need allies in this space. Mm. And without you or people like you, we wouldn't get anywhere because we need to have people on the inside that are kind of helping move this work forward. Um, It's so so true in both directions. Like we all want to go to the same place. We all need each other to get there. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, I strongly believe in the inclusion of people with lived experience in all aspects of 
everything. Um, That's how I started working in healthcare was as a like youth with lived experience um, Mm. that worked on projects and like still incredibly important for every field, I think. So what are you most excited about in terms of new trends or findings in research about BPD? interesting question I mean I think well I'm most I'm most excited about the things that I'm doing <laughs> fair <laughs> not because I think they're the most important but just because I uh because I spend uh, like every waking moment thinking about them so that makes me excited about them but what I I would say like so um in 2015 a study came out of Marshall Linehan's group that showed that uh, it broke down all the components of DBT, like the individual therapy alone versus the skills groups alone, paired with kind of like a, a case management that is sort of was there to kind of check on risk and support people, but not be the same as individual therapy um, paired with uh, versus kind of the typical DBT package, which would involve doing the skills groups and the individual therapy together. And it suggested that in general, the skills group conditions were the ones that were doing the best and weren't that different from each other. And that's really, that's probably not true for everybody, by the way, I should say, like some people, you know, there's probably a lot more nuance to it than that. But that's a really exciting finding to me because the skills groups are the things that are the easiest to spread to people. So if the news were the opposite that, oh, you need this very, you know, complex, nuanced individual therapy for everybody, then kind of our access hopes and dreams would be more challenged, right? But to me, that suggests that like, wow, there's real possibility to to scale this in a meaningful way and a way bigger kind of level than it currently exists if if something like the skills are what might be carrying a lot of the interventions effects. So I would actually, I was joking when I said it was my, so I would say that was like a really exciting finding that I'm really, really, really thrilled about. And I do think um, in, in my research, but elsewhere too, there's just a more appreciation for interpersonal context than there used to be. Like the role of families, partners, relationships, both how they are impacted by BPD, but also how they can impact BPD. Um, That this isn't something that just happens in a vacuum and keeps itself going in a vacuum, um, I think is also a really important thing to start thinking about. Yeah. And like how important for, well, potentially, I don't know if the research has shown this, but like for our partners to understand the skills that we're being taught in things like groups. Um, yeah, I'm I'm also really happy about the group finding because it helps so much with affordability and like cost effectiveness for the system. Yeah, um, which like from a, my master's of health administration brain, that's like such a huge way to advocate to government to be like, look, here's how much it costs for an individual with BPD to come to the hospital once every six months or whatever, even for like one or two nights versus how much it would cost to run a group that could potentially change the life of all of these people for what you can have probably like 10, 12 people in a group at a time. Like that's yeah, so much cheaper. Yeah. And like on that note too, I think another really exciting thing that's being done in lots of different places in the field is like trying to figure out, um, you know, there was a trial that came out recently that some of my colleagues and mentors did that compared 12 months of DBT to six months. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you worked on this. You worked yeah, on the study. Oh my yeah. gosh. So do you I was a research assistant. It wasn't like I was super like high up in it, but yeah, I was doing the 
phone screenings and interviews oh, with the amazing. clients. So do you know the findings then? I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I talked to Alex about it or Dr. Chapman about right. it at a walk. And it sounds like the six months was as effective as yeah. the 12 months, which is absolutely yeah. incredible. In fact, people, I believe in the six month condition got better faster in some outcomes than the 12 months. And I don't think, again, that means that everyone's going to be able to benefit in six months. I have colleagues that have 12 session interventions that are three months long where, you know, people are showing promising effects in some of our couples therapies, very early, tiny sample size data is suggesting similar things. And so it's not like I'm saying, oh, everybody should be able to get better in two months. You know, that's not true necessarily. It's certainly not true for everybody. But I think there has been an assumption going way back to what you said that like, oh, people with BPD can't do X or Y or Z. Oh, they need so much treatment. And some people probably do need a lot of treatment, you know, that have really difficult lives and histories and are struggling a lot. But some people might not need that much treatment. And if we're starting to figure out like, well, what's the range of that, then that actually helps everybody because the people who can get better quicker can do that. And then that there's more space for people who need more time to then access Mm -hmm. that. So I think that, I think that a lot of our assumptions are being challenged around that right now. And that's kind of a very cool thing too. Yeah. Like if you think about 20 years ago, we weren't treatable at all. And now, or maybe 30 years ago now, and now it's like, oh, well, you can have like a much better life within six months just yeah. using groups like that's incredible that's a big deal yeah, yeah. totally yeah. and you can triage people too right like yeah yeah some people aren't gonna succeed in groups because yeah. of so many factors right like totally. language barriers social anxiety like all of these other things um but for people like me who like group changed my life and I never mm-hmm. did a full program because like well it wasn't right. accessible for me and then also groups were working so well that it wasn't even needed Right. Um, Like, it's just, why would I have potentially like taken a spot of an individual who needed to have the full program for a full year when I could have done, I don't even remember how long I was in my program, but like four to six months, maybe. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think we're just starting to figure out like what the menu of options could be. You know, Marsha's work, Marsha Linehan's work was life-saving, groundbreaking to start with this idea that, oh, people with BPD are untreatable to then develop something that has helped so many people, you know, and it's been a real game changer when she developed dialectical behavior therapy So that's like was a major breakthrough. And now I think kind of the there's like a bunch of small breakthroughs happening that are like, oh, actually, we can do it for some people in this much time. Oh, actually, we can take this component out. And for some people that still works like, you know, and so there's a lot of activity happening in the field right now to figure out kind of the diversity of treatment options that could work and then which ones work for who and then how do we match people ideally like that's what's going on. And it's very cool. It's so cool. And I, I just want to clarify for anybody that's listening to this that hasn't listened to all the other episodes. Like, I'm not saying that I did six months of group and then my life was magically better. Mm. Far from it. <laughs> I did six months of group and I was able to stay alive and out of jail. And then over time, my life got to where it is now, right? Like it, it's, there's no yeah. magic cure. There's no magic pill. We talk about that all the time on this show, but totally, yeah, I just want to clarify that in case anybody's like, she said that it was going to magically cure me in six months. <laughs> no, not quite. Um, totally. Yeah. So wh- let's let's talk a little bit more about what research you're up to right now. Sure. So I just finished. So I've been alluding to couples stuff because 
One of the things that I think has, for me has been kind of coming out of the research over the last several years is, you know, we used to think or often think of BPD that the, the central problem is what we call motion dysregulation, sort of intense disrupted emotion, or, or people have a hard time regulating their emotions. And that is true. There is some evidence for that. And certainly a lot of folks will say that about their experience that they have really big emotions. So that's not, you know, uh, wrong from my perspective. But I think there's been more research that's added more nuance to it and suggested that for a lot of people with BPD, these intense emotions really come out in interpersonal contexts or in their relationships or when they might feel rejected or when they might feel hurt by other people. And a lot of, not everybody, but a lot of people with BPD will say like, well, you know, if it's just a, like a stressful math problem, like I can kind of handle it. But when I feel like somebody's judging me, like that really hurts and like lands on me. So I started to think about that more and think about this idea of, well, what if, if BPD is kind of happening in relationships in a way people are like, you know, reacting in their own relationships, then maybe the relationship gives us this perfect optimal context to actually treat it, you know? So, and also, you know, people with BPD, it's not just them who are impacted by BPD. BPD really wedges itself into people's relationship. It impacts the person with the disorder, but it also impacts loved ones too. And, and it can kind of wedge people apart in ways that we don't want. So I'm, I've been developing a treatment that's for couples where at least one person has BPD with sort of the idea that we could do a sort of a three for one. We could treat BPD and enhance relationship functioning and help partners with their own mental health problems if they had some all at the same time, because all of those things are all happening together in like one big soup, like not in a vacuum from each other. So we developed a 12-session couple-based treatment for that, and we've been testing that in clinical trials lately. That, that's called SAGE. We've been testing that in clinical trial in a clinical trial, and our results, uh, we're just getting them in now. So I don't have like everything that I could kind of share exactly what's going on. But so far, our results are promising and positive um, and suggest that it might be working, which is exciting. We need to test it a lot more. Um, so that's sort of one one piece that I've been working on. And then while I was working on that, I started to think, you know, we don't actually know a lot about what people with BPD's relationships actually look like. Like, how are they communicating? How are their loved ones communicating with them? Are there ways of communicating with each other that are really helpful? Are there ways that are like not helpful? And obviously, we have lots of ideas about that within validation and validation, but it's not really been studied that much. So I'm doing a Another study that's not a treatment study, but it's just kind of looking at how folks with BPD and their loved ones, their partners specifically, communicate with each other and how they experience BPD and related problems in their relationship with the idea that what we want to be able to produce at the end of this is findings that say, hey, like, here's the way of talking to each other that's really helpful for folks with BPD, but also helpful for your relationship. Here are the ways that are talking to each other that are not so helpful, that are actually making things worse, maybe. Sometimes we interact with each other in ways that we think is helpful, but it's maybe a little bit harmful. So, you know, here's the kind of things that we want to steer away from. That's what we're trying to get to with that study. And so Aaron and I are participants in that study, which is so cool. And it's funny because you reached out to ask about like, oh, is there a way to like promote that we're recruiting for this study? Yeah. And I was like, 
well, yes, but also we're in the study. So I didn't we don't even know. know. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I was like, yes, but I don't know if this is a conflict, but we're, we're in the study. So just we've, yeah, we've talked to Aaron about it. We're all good about talking about how we're in the study. And it's been really interesting. And I just have to share, like, my husband is the greatest. And at one point I was like, it, so you have to do, is it five daily surveys yeah. for a month or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's it's not a small commitment for that month. Like the rest of it yeah. is totally fine. There's a couple of like longer surveys or whatever. And at one point I was like, oh, this is so much. Like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. And he's like, well, it's not about you. It's about creating better research for people with BPD. And I was like, you're the greatest. And yeah, fine. I'll keep going. I'll keep going. I'll do the stupid survey. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and and like I think that's why I'm so passionate about research in this area and why I like I'm so excited to have you on the show. And I hope to have other researchers on the show is that we have the ability to contribute to the scientific community in a like really important way as people yeah. who live with BPD and our families. And if we don't participate, then the research doesn't happen. Mm. And so it, you know, not that everybody has to do research. That's you have every right to not do research. But I think a lot of people don't even know that this is an option for them to participate in studies like this. Mm. So do you want to talk a little bit more about like the actual process other than the the surveys for the month? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, (laughs) yeah, for sure. And I can say like, maybe just say it to say one high level thing about participating in research. I mean, yes, it is so valuable. And I also think that if you're participating in research, I hope people feel like they have the opportunity to sort of shape that research. We had somebody at one point say to us, like, you know, these questions about my relationship are all negative. And we were like, that's so true. And then we like, went and kind of looked at like, why are we not evaluating, like looking at like humor and play and like, you know, and then we sort of started to change our methods in response to that feedback. So that's really valuable too, not just participating, but if, if people are, if you're in, if anyone out there is in research and it's like, you know, I have some feedback for the researchers that's valuable, at least as a researcher, I like to hear it. So anyway, but this particular study, what this involves is Uh, People email our lab and then they will get a questionnaire that sort of asks them some questions to see if they might be eligible for the study. And then if they are eligible for the study, then, well, if it looks like they might be eligible, then the next step would be to potentially meet with a member of our research team to talk about the study a little more. They'll get more questions asked of them at that point. Once we determine that they're eligible as a couple. You know, we kind of take all the information from both members of a couple, look at it all as a package, and then just just, uh, determine if couples are eligible. Once they are eligible, if they are, then we kind of enroll people and they do questionnaires, like a kind of a chunk of questionnaires from their computer once every three months, so four times over the course of a year. As as Lori said, that's not necessarily like that kind of, I think, probably higher demand part of the study. And then the other thing is they download an app on their phone and they get prompted for sort of shorter surveys than that five times a day, every day for a month. People can skip surveys if they don't want to. But yeah, it just sure. sort of asks like, you know, about what have you been experiencing since the last prompt? And the reason we do that is because we want to see sort of, we want to see a lot of research is biased by people just trying to remember like what happened over the last few months 
Um, we want to kind of catch people in in their daily actual experience. Like, what is it like to actually be living with this? What is it like to be talking to each other? What's happening in your relationship? So we want to kind of capture all of those things in real time. So that's kind of what the major components of the study look like. Yeah, and both partners get the same or very similar surveys at the very least. I didn't actually look at what Aaron's looked like, but I know that they were similar questions. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time points, right? So if Mm -hmm. I say like, I'm really angry or whatever, then I'm assuming he gets a question saying like, is she very angry (laughs) or something like that, right? Um, which I mean, would be fascinating to look at the results. I, I, yeah, that's kind of one of the things, I mean, we're not like piping through, like Lori said this, no, but we are interested in looking at like, how much are people agreeing on things that are going on? I mean, that's, that's not even just related to, to BPD, like in any couple's research, like, you know, are people lined up with what they think is going on in their relationship or not? And if they are, what does that mean? Is that good? Is that bad? So I think that this study will unlock some of that for us too. Yeah. And it's so hard as a person with BPD who is observing like the tiniest body movements or like facial expressions to not assume that the person hates you, right? Even Mm -hmm. in like the most loving relationship where you have skills, you're still going to be like, are they leaving me though? Like I'm not a hundred percent. Right. Like, and right. like the night before my wedding, I was like, Hey, are we still on for tomorrow? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like just to double check. Yeah. Um, and, and so like to be able to see what the person, the individual's perspective is versus what their partner's perspective is of the same situation. Yeah. I know you're not comparing like individual responses, but it'd be really cool to, you know what I mean? Just like out of curiosity. And in the, I was just looking at what the website said for like who can participate. Is it specifically BPD or is it just people who have intense emotions? It is like BPD symptoms. So, okay. so not necessarily. Not necessarily. You don't have to have a full diagnosis. We'll ask to see if there are some experiences that are consistent <laughs> enough for us, but it's not a diagnostic process. Like we're not going to say, yep, that's BPD at the end of it or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, most people who listen to this podcast have BPD or have a loved one with BPD, but not everybody has access to a diagnosis, right? Which is... Yeah. And you don't um, need one for this. Yeah. Perfect. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So when is the study going to be done? Like how... Because it's a year of follow-up, right? Yeah. We still got a fair amount of time. So we've got a a few more years to the study. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. So there's tons of time to sign up. There's tons of time. Yeah. And I'll put the information about how to sign up in the show notes as well. Thank you. That's great. Is there any other research like happening in your lab that you're particularly excited about or want to share? Yeah, sure. So we just finished, um, actually also finished recruiting for a clinical trial, testing an online self-help intervention for couples where one person has PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. So that was... It's called Couple Hopes, which stands for Helping Overcome PTSD and Enhance Satisfaction. So if anyone's curious, they can go to our website at couplehopes.com. The study is over, but if you want to see what it looks like, I think it's a very pretty website. Um, (laughs) So we've been testing to see if that will help people improve their PTSD symptoms and their partners, their and their partner's relationship satisfaction and functioning. So we've got that on the go. And as I said, I'm starting to try and get some ducks in a row to explore what it would be like to work more in a kind of a peer support 
work with people with lived experience and try and figure out if we if we do want a world where peers are providing things like DUT skills, what even and, and I think that's already happening in some places, but what do, what needs to be in place for people to be able to do that to adherence and uh, adherence to kind of the the treatment manual or in ways that feels comfortable and safe for everybody involved? Like, how do we get all that together? So I'm starting to explore that, but it's very early stages. Like, are you accepting grad students by any chance? (laughs) I do typically accept grad students. I got a lot of grad students, but I'm not this year accepting grad students, but maybe next year, you never know. Yeah. It's like, if you go into the peer support thing, let me know. And I will, I will be there. Um, (laughs) Okay. That's really cool. I, out of curiosity, I know there's a lot of debate around complex post-traumatic stress disorder and BPD. What are your thoughts in that space? Yeah. Wow. It's, it's a great question. It's also like, you know, somehow become such a political question in a way. I don't know. I don't really understand why. So, okay. So basically the, you know, the, the field is, everybody likes to fight about this. The field is very split. Some people say that there's post-traumatic stress disorder, there's BPD, and then there's this complex PTSD diagnosis that involves some features that look similar to BPD that involves PTSD plus some features that look similar to BPD, but it's separate. And then some people say that's not separate. That's the same thing. And then of course, like the ICD, which is kind of a diagnostic system that's used frequently in other countries, especially in Europe does have a complex PTSD diagnosis. The DSM does not. So I I think about it kind of pragmatically, I would say, and like a, also like a scientist, I, I don't all, you know, I think some of the the studies that have attempted to see if those problems all separate from each other, are they really different problems? Some suggest they do and some suggest they don't. So I feel like we don't really know. I think that at the end of the day, all of the diagnoses might be a little bit wrong, you know, at least a little bit wrong. And not to say that it's not real or what people are experiencing is not like a meaningful diagnostic category, but just to say that, you know, BPD, the criteria that make up the BPD diagnosis were criteria that were invented by human beings and um, a long time ago, a long time ago and haven't changed, you know, like have really not changed a lot. And then you can study something and show a scientific support for it, but you could still be studying something that's problematic or not perfect in its construction in the first place. And I think that's probably true of BPD. And that's probably true of the complex PTSD concept as well. So for me, at the end of the day, it's kind of still a scientific question. And I would say, I think what's really important to me for people to understand about the complex PTSD diagnosis is sometimes I worry that it leaves people with the impression that they can't benefit from a PTSD treatment, that their PTSD is so complex that they need a special treatment for it. That's for complex, quote unquote, complex people. I don't think that there is a simple form of PTSD. It's always complex in some ways. And there's been several studies at this point that have tested our PTSD treatments in folks that would meet criteria for a complex PTSD diagnosis and shown that they can benefit just as much as anyone else can. So my only fear with the diagnosis is people will say, oh, I can't do that. You know, it's too complicated. And 
that's not been what's been borne out in the science that people can get better, you know, with, with any kind of PTSD that they have. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So kind of similar to like the BPD issue around like untreatable thoughts. It's like, you're too complex for our existing treatments. So therefore we're going to either not treat you or you're not going to feel like you can be treated, even though that's not actually what's occurring. Yes. I think so. That's, that's like one of my, so my concerns about complex PTSD are not really around like, is it real? Is it not real? Like, I think the science is going to reveal to us at some point what the best way of conceptualizing all these things is. It's more around like, okay, like, um, I hope people can still pursue the PTSD treatments that that could be beneficial to them, even if they receive that diagnosis or identify with it they can still get better. I hope people know that. And I think the other, and and I think the other point that often comes up for me when I think about this is a lot of people use the term complex trauma, not even referring to PTSD, just like I have sort of a trauma reaction and I have the experience of trauma. Um, And there are many ways we can be impacted by trauma and by stressors that don't always translate to PTSD specifically. Like PTSD is a very specific response to trauma that involves things like nightmares and flashbacks and like really specific reactions. You can be depressed as a consequence of trauma. You can be anxious. You can have BPD. Like, you know, these are the trauma can infect us in lots of different ways. Um, And if you don't have PTSD, it doesn't mean your trauma hasn't impacted you profoundly. And, but it does mean that you probably don't want to seek out a PTSD treatment because it's a very specific thing and it may not be the best treatment for you. So I think that sometimes there's like a bit of like things are getting a little bit messy and it might lead to people seeking out treatments that are not really aligned with what they actually might need treatment for. Uh, You can, you can, my message there is really just that you can be profoundly impacted by trauma and not necessarily need a PTSD treatment. And maybe you need a treatment for something else that respects your trauma and is trauma informed. Yeah. And I think like, as you can imagine, we have like 150 episodes of talking about BPD and like labeling comes up a lot. Yeah. And I personally believe that for me, getting a BPD label was incredibly important because it helped me figure out what my next steps were going to be and made me feel less alone and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But at the end of the day, if the label isn't beneficial for the individual, then it doesn't matter really. Exactly. And so I think it would be the same with like PTSD, complex PTSD, or just like an individual who has experienced trauma. If it can help them, then great. But if not, then the focus shouldn't necessarily be on like the label yeah. But I'm not an individual who has PTSD. So I, I can't speak yeah. to that perspective. I think that's right. And like, that makes sense to me too. And I think that for a lot of people, trauma is really central in how they understand their problems and themselves. And like, who am I to push back on that? Like, you know, we can be profoundly impacted by trauma. Of course, I, I've occasionally, you know, we'll see people who that that's the case for them and they conclude therefore that they need treatment for PTSD. And then when I assess them for PTSD, I realized like, oh, you don't actually meet what we would call PTSD, like criteria for what we would call PTSD. Doesn't mean you don't need a treatment, a tr- and even a treatment that's involving your trauma, but that's not necessarily the same thing. And so, yeah, I think that like people, labels that help get people towards where they need to go are great, and labels that push them away are not great. And um, the jury's still out, I think, in terms of how to use all these labels in the right way. Yeah, and I think it'll change 
forever. Like I don't think yeah. I don't think we're ever going to come to the conclusion because I think right. as the world changes around us, that conclusion yes. will change as well. Yes. Yes, agreed. Well, I like to end my episodes with a question and it's usually for people with lived experience, but I'm curious from your perspective as a researcher, what is what are the biggest positives of people with BPD? Oh, oh my gosh, so many. It's a beautiful question. I do. I mean, I'm sure you hear this a lot. So I feel like a, I have an urge to try and come up with something more creative. But my first my first answer is like the emotional richness of folks with BPD is really profound and beautiful. And I know that it is like a source of torment for a lot of people. But I think when people can learn to work with it in a way that's not so painful for them, it's quite profound. And I completely agree with you that it's a superpower. I also think that some, you know, many of the people that I've met with BPD are some of the most like gritty, resilient people. It takes a lot of grit and resilience to come through something that's that painful. And um, I, I think that a lot of, you know, it's, it's ironic that what we were talking about earlier is just that like a lot of people think people with BPD aren't capable when it's like, they're a lot more capable than almost everybody else. Like they are, they're like navigating their lives and having strong emotions at the same time and, and sort of parsing all those things. I think that gives somebody a lot of grit. Uh, and so I think that's a pretty beautiful thing too. Awesome. I love that. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with us before we wrap up? No, I think this has been a really fun conversation for me anyway. <laughs> it's been so much fun for me too. I could talk forever. So thank you so much for coming on. Look forward to hearing more about the findings of your research in the future, hopefully. And uh, yeah, just thank you for all the work you do. Thank you. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey, and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about Borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.